Georgia Case Law Podcast. Ryan Locke, show them how we break it down like that. For the lawyers, come and tune in right away. I know that you may not have time to read every case for the latest criminal defense and personal injuries from appellate courts. Oh, yeah, this is what you need every week. All my lawyers, where you at? This is Georgia Case Law Podcast. Let's go. Ryan Locke. Welcome to another episode of Georgia Case Law Podcast. My name is Ryan Locke. I represent people who have been injured, people who have been wrongfully convicted of crimes from my office in Atlanta, Georgia, where I'm currently eating a milkshake while I'm taping. And I know I'm not supposed to do that, but this podcast is free and so you get what you get and you don't get upset. I say that to my children quite a bit. Anyway. We're going to start with criminal cases, and we're starting with a real banger out of the Court of Appeals. January 27th, 2021 is when the opinion was released. It is in re Lightfoot. This is the Fulton County Public Defender Contempt case. And so in this case, it was the middle of a trial, and the public defender is cross-examining a police officer. And the officer who arrested her client. And she starts cross-examining the officer about a body camera video. I'm not sure if it was his or if it was like a different officer's body cam. And I te- I, I kind of think that it was a different officer's body cam. But anyway, the, the state objects to foundation when she tries to enter it because the officer uh, testifies that he wasn't sure if it was his. He only knew that it was a body cam video. And then the public defender asked that the officer be able to view the video. Trial court said no. The officer said that he watched the video two days before. And so the public defender starts cross-examining him about the officer, about what happened at specific minute and second points. And the state objects again and says, the public defender is trying to narrate a video that's not in evidence. And the public defender says the timestamps came from several resources, not just the video. And so then the trial court says, oh, where did the timestamps come from? Reveal your sources. She says that she has none and she moves for a mistrial. This is the public defender. Then uh, the jury goes out. They have, they all have a bench conference. And long story short is um, the, the court gives her 30 minutes to figure out if she can get the video in or not. When they come back, the public defender says that the other sources for the timestamps are privileged, but it, it I'm not entirely sure that's right. And the court gets mad. And so the court says, you represented to the court that you had other sources and now you're trying to assert this privilege that you can't even really explain and fines her in contempt and fines her a thousand dollars. And I don't know what public defenders are paid now, but when I was a Fulton County public defender, I got paid $52,000 a year. And uh, so a thousand bucks would hurt. And anyway, it goes up on appeal. Long story short, the contempt gets reversed. And what everyone needs to know about contempt is that Criminal contempt is willful disrespect toward the court in the court's presence. 
And the trial court can announce punishment summarily if the contempt is direct in the presence. If the contempt is indirect, like you're not obeying a court order or you know, you're doing something outside the court's presence, then the court has to hold a hearing. But if it's, if it's in front of the court, then yeah, you can get slapped with contempt when the court gets pissed. But the mens rea of contempt is that the attorney should know that he is exceeding the outermost limits of his proper role and hindering rather than facilitating the search for truth. And it's essentially a kind of multi-factor balancing test, right? Where you're balancing between promoting zealous advocacy and holding lawyers accountable for egregious cases. And here it came out on the side of the public defender. The factors are the extent of the notice of contempt, the likely impact on the fact finder, whether the statements were isolated or a pattern, the significance of the issue, and the extent to which the court provoked the behavior. And most of the factors came out for the public defender here. She was on notice, bad, but the jury was not present, good. Her assertion of privilege was only made once, good. The issue, which is whether she had a good faith basis for her questions, was not significant, good. The court did not provoke, bad. And any delay was caused by the recess that the court that the court took, good. And other actions could have achieved the same result other than direct contempt. So the trial court should have warned her before announcing contempt. The So what can we learn from this case? One, I think... It's been a minute since I've tried to introduce someone else's body cam footage in court. I wonder if you can get these records certified as like a business record is one. I don't know if that's right or not. Maybe that's just the milkshake talking, but that might be able to head off the whole foundation thing. Two, I think it, it probably should have been let in. The She certainly should have been able to reflect the refresh the officer's recollection about it. And I also think that, I don't know, this is probably why I'm not a judge, but I think you should be able to ask about what happened in the video because there's cases out there that says if you watch the video and the video is not available, then it's not hearsay to describe what you saw in a video. And I think in this same kind of thing, confronting the officer about what the officer watched in the video two days before is fair game. I think the risk here is if you can't get the video into, you know, if you can't impeach the officer with the video because you can't prove that it's authentic or whatever, then then you have a problem proven up if the officer decides to say something that's not right. But otherwise, I think you should be able to. Last point is if you are in a situation like this where you're being held in contempt, don't freak out, number one. Number two, they're only going to take your money or maybe throw you in, 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 <laughs> throw you in the slammer for a little bit to cool off. I know another lawyer that happened to, and it, it'll probably suck the, the time that you're sitting in there, but it'll be pretty short and you'll, you'll have it as a badge of honor. And number three, if this happens to you, call the Gactol strike force. If you're, if you're a defense lawyer, if you're not a member of Gactol and you're a defense lawyer, you really should join. Anyway, so that's all I have to say about that. This was in re Lightfoot. Congratulations to public defender Lightfoot for getting her 1K back. That was January 27th, 2021. Next case is Torres versus the state.
That's Torres with an S, T-O-R-R-E-S. This case dropped January 27th, 2021, case number A20A1596. So this is a sentencing case. Torres was convicted of four counts of incest, two counts of aggravated child molestation, and a single count of rape and a single count of aggravated sexual battery. And so he ends up getting life on the ag child molestation, rape, and aggravated sexual battery, and then 160 years on the four counts of incest, everything to run consecutively. Not great for Torres. So he won his earlier appeal where they affirmed the convictions, but they vacated the sentences because the incest counts needed to have a split sentence because they did not comply with 1710.6.2b, the version that was in effect when he committed the crimes. And so what the trial court did was the trial court split the sentences. And what the the trial court did was have three years to run concurrent with, with incarceration and then the rest in jail or the rest in prison. And so the he, Torres appealed again and said, is this right? And the Court of Appeals said, yes, that you can impose a hybrid sentence where some of the probation runs concurrent, like some part of the sentence runs concurrent and then some part of the sentence runs consecutive. And probation can be run concurrent with incarceration. And and so that's the thing that trial courts can do. And that's that. That was Torres versus the state, January 27th, 2021. All right, next case up is Middleton versus the state. Uh, this is January 27th, 2021, Court of Appeals case, A18A, 2035. This is really one of those workaday cases where Middleton was in the Court of Appeals. He appealed to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court reversed uh, the Court of Appeals judgment in part and then remanded to the Court of Appeals for the Court of Appeals to remand to the trial court, <clears throat> a little like appellate telephone, so to speak. I don't really want to get into it because it's like it would be a whole thing. And and this is all the opinions do it. Really, the only reason I'm talking about it is because I don't know if it was smart or dumb, but I said I would talk about every case that they decide. And this is me talking about every case. All right, let's get on to something more interesting. Terry versus the state. This is January 28th, 2021. Uh, Court of Appeals case A20A1627. It's a Judge Dillard case for everyone that's into that. So it is a traffic stop case. And so a state trooper stops Terry's vehicle because the window tint was too dark and the license tag was obstructed. And it turns out that Terry should not be driving the car because Terry does not have a driver's license, and instead he produced an invalid Florida identification card. He did that because his actual driver's license is invalid and had been suspended a total of 10 times. And Terry doesn't own the car. His passenger owns the car. And the state trooper arrests Terry for driving with a suspended license and releases the car to the passenger. After this, the passenger refuses a search of the car. But the canine officer allowed his dog to do a free air sniff 
and the dog detected some type of marijuana or narcotic. Long story short, they found a bunch of molly, uh, a bunch of marijuana, and 11.5 in cash, and the passenger also had a bag of weed in her pocket. And that's it. At uh, Before trial, Terry files a motion to suppress the evidence obtained from the traffic stop because uh, his argument is that the initial stop was lawful, but the canine sniff was unlawful because it was conducted after the mission of the traffic stop was complete. And he ends up, a little spoiler alert, he ends up winning on this argument. The Court of Appeals agrees because in these drug dog sniff you know, traffic stop cases, the dog sniff is not characterized as part of the officer's traffic mission. And so that seizure, the additional seizure that the, the additional seizure time it takes for the dog to sniff the car is unlawful, even if it's pretty short. So any amount of time after the mission. And so what you have to look for is when did the mission of the traffic stop complete? And was the canine search before or after the mission was completed? And here, it was after the it was after the mission of the traffic stop was completed, and so it was improper, and all that stuff should be suppressed. The, what the state argued is they argued this procedural point, where yeah, I think we've talked about this before. Under the old law, old Georgia law you had to object up, down, and sideways every time something came up in order to preserve that error. And there are very limited situations where maybe you still have to do that, but most of the time you don't. And we have we have an evidence rule, 24-1-103-A, that says now, that says once the court makes a definitive ruling on the record admitting or excluding any evidence, either at or before trial, a party need not renew an objection or offer of proof to preserve such claim of error for appeal. And by the way, those really narrow situations where maybe you do need to object again, I don't think there have been cases since the new, I'm using air quotes, the new evidence code. And But, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure if, if Brandon Bullard is listening, I'm sure he'll email me soon if I'm wrong about that. But... I, I, I hope I'm not. Or if I am wrong, someone let me know soon so that I don't screw that part up. But here, pre-trial, the, the trial lawyer filed a motion to suppress, lost. But then at trial, <laughs> the trial lawyer said that he had no objection to this evidence coming in. And the state seized on that and tried to use that to argue that this objection was somehow waived or something like that. Court of Appeals wasn't having it. I think that Probably what's most proper, I think what would give, or I should say, not necessarily most proper, but best practice would probably be if there's evidence that you want to keep out, whenever that evidence is coming in, you just make a short and sweet objection. Just, hey, judge, just stand standing on our prior objection or subject to our objection already lodged, that kind of thing. That'll probably you know, keep the appellate lawyer's pulse down when they start reading the case and see this stuff. But even if you forget or just don't do it or whatever, you're still good so long as you have the court making a definitive ruling. By the way, this is not in this case, but it springs to mind as we're talking about this. 
one way, one easy way to mess this up is if you make this kind of motion. And let's say that you just make, let's say you make it as like a motion in limine or something instead of a written motion and all that. But, or even if you have a written motion and then the court hears evidence right before trial and then the court says, well, I'm going to take it under advisement. That is not a definitive ruling on the record. And so you need to object again when this evidence comes up again in order to preserve it. And I've had issues that I've appealed that have not been preserved and we've had to go to IAC because this kind of thing. And it can be hard. If you're making a handful, a half dozen or a dozen motion in limines right at the start of trial and, and you're running through and the court's under advisement on some and ruling on others and all that kind of thing, it can be a little bit awkward to try to press the court to make a decision or to remember to make a decision. Like the court may have a good reason to take it under advisement. Like maybe they want to hear some of the testimony before they decide if that 404B witness is coming in or something. But you need to make sure the court makes a definitive ruling in order to be protected by 241103A. Anyway, that was Terry versus the state, January 28th, 2021. Next case is Cooper versus the state. Court of Appeals case, January 28th, 2021, docket number A20A, 1946. This is a case about, this is a case about following the rules. And there's some rules, some Court of Appeals and Supreme Court rules that they exist, but I just don't follow them because I don't want to. And rules like you know, exactly how you should cite to the record. I don't like putting a little dash in between the, the T and the number. I like to put a T period space and then the number and then a period. That's a rule they seem not to care about. I, I use a, a nicer font than Times New Roman. Uh, they seem to appreciate that. I still make it 14 points. Th those are rules that I think if you're looking, if you're focusing on making it as easy as possible to read and as nice to look at as possible, then the court will appreciate it. There are other rules that you really have to follow. Rules, you have to support your enumerations of error by citing authority or the record. And, you know, you have to include a concise statement of the applicable standard of review. You have to enumerate your errors, that kind of stuff. That's all stuff that Cooper did not do because he was a pro se appealing his traffic ticket because he wanted the court to find that 40, 60, 50, or 46, 40 6 50 was not constitutional. That's the, that's the statute that makes it illegal to drive in an emergency lane in the absence of an actual emergency. He, he appealed it to the Supreme Court, which then kicked it to the Court of Appeals because he did not properly challenge the constitutionality of that statute. And then the Court of Appeals denied all his stuff and also just trashed him because he didn't follow any of the rules. So if you don't want to get trashed for not following any of the rules, make sure you follow the rules. That's Cooper versus the state. Also, I wonder if Cooper found it as fun as we do to, to do his appeal. 
I guess we'll never know. Anyway, let's go to another following the rules case. Uh, this is Harris versus the state. January 28th, 2021, Court of Appeals case A20A1795. And in this case, the this is a real lawyer who did this. The real lawyer also did not follow the rules. And what they did was they they did not include a succinct and accurate statement of the proceedings below and the material facts relevant to the appeal or a citation of the parts of the record or transcript essential to a consideration of the errors. And what I find funny is what the lawyer wrote is um, they referenced the, and this is a quote, the grounds, reasons, and arguments as were stated, articulated, and developed by defendant's trial counsel on the record at defendant's jury trial, all of which are incorporated by reference as if fully restated herein. The Court of Appeals don't like that, and that's also not best practice. And so if you're appealing a case, don't don't do that. Actually list out your errors. But the, the funny thing, too, is that it didn't stop the Court of Appeals from addressing the six claims of error raised in the appeal. So n- nothing, I guess, nothing to write home about. Don't show your mom where the Court of Appeals is trashing you, but it still got the job done. You know, who's the fool now? This is a getting the facts of the case. It's a pretty standard child molestation case. Harris was the paternal uncle of the victim began molesting and raping her when she was seven. She told uh, Harris, defendant Harris, told the victim that he would harm her if she told anyone. The victim did tell her mom after Harris was arrested on unrelated charges, recounted, uh, recanted her outcry in the forensic interview, but then testified that it did happen. And the state presented a 414 witness, which is that special child sex case 404 4B witness, but there's that special evidence rule, 414. Um, And this other witness lived with Harris like a long time ago, and Harris molested her when she was five and began raping her when she was seven and continued until she was 12. And uh, the the lawyer, uh, I should say that the trial lawyer rose, uh, raised a number of claims in the trial court and They were incorporated by reference, and here they are. One was that the evidence was insufficient to support the verdict. That didn't fly because both there was the victim testified, but also there's a um, the similar transaction witness that showed his propensity for for doing this stuff. The trial court failed to fulfill its role as the thirteenth juror. This never wins. Didn't win here either. You know, as, as long as the order shows that the trial court exercised its discretion, even if that's all it says, it's just a conclusory statement, then that's not going to win. The 414 witness, this is probably the most interesting part of the case. The You can use this 414 evidence to show that it, the, the defendant has a propensity to commit certain sexual offenses. And here the similarities were marked. And it was not inadmissible just because it, it occurred 20 years earlier. And so it doesn't appear to be any real time limit on when this 414 stuff can come in. And that's if you're defending a case like this, that's not great for you. The other interesting thing is they argue that so that the detective gave some testimony about DNA, 
even though he was not admitted as an expert and he's obviously not a scientist, he's a detective. But apparently, a police officer can give opinion testimony regarding his observations if an adequate foundation is laid with respect to his experience and training, even if he's not tendered as an expert. I guess that's the special expert light standard if you're a police officer. But he had, anyway, he had, uh, this detective had years of experience investigating these crimes and only testified to his knowledge. And even if there was an error, the court found that it was harmless. They also brought up a Brady violation that didn't fly. And and there was no, obviously no cumulative error because there was no error. So that was uh, Harris versus the state, January 28th, 2021. All right, now we're on to Georgia Supreme Court cases. First one we got is Palmer versus the state. This is January 11th, 2021 case. The It's S20A1118. By the way, we, these cases aren't exactly last week cases because we had a little bit of a backlog in some Supreme Court cases. So that's why they're showing up now. Anyway, back to the show. So Palmer lived in Savannah worked at his family's restaurant and sold weed and acted as a middleman for drug shipments on the side. And on December 13th, his friend William Whitset came to stay with him. And so a couple days later on December 18th, Palmer dropped his uh, girlfriend off at the restaurant and they lived together, uh, Palmer and his girlfriend. So defendant Palmer drops his girlfriend off at the restaurant and leaves for the day. Whitset, the friend, was not at the apartment that night. The next day, Whitset still hasn't shown up. And Palmer told his girlfriend, oh, hey, I found these notes from Whitset that said he had left for Florida and that I could keep all of his things, including his car. And then Palmer produces the keys to the car and brings a shotgun in from the car. And on Friday and Saturday, some marijuana shows up at the apartment. Defendant Palmer immediately begins selling it and says, oh, Whitsitt said that I could keep some. And so I'm going to sell. I'm going to sell the marijuana that Whitsitt said I could keep. Anyway, things start going south a couple days later when a telephone lineman discovers Whitsitt's partially concealed body in a ditch in a wooded area that was accessible to Defendant Palmer's apartment building. And if you watched any episodes of Law & Order SVU, you know what's coming next. The medical examiner finds gunshot wounds to Whitset's face and a defensive wound to the arm from a 22. They identify Whitset from his fingerprints and they find the car next to Defendant Palmer's apartment. They haul Defendant Palmer in for an interview on December 24th, <laughs> you know, Merry Christmas to Defendant Palmer. And Palmer tells conflicting stories. He says, oh, Whitsitt's death was gang-related. And then the next story, oh, well, Whitsitt was racist, and, and that must be why he got killed and all this stuff. The And Palmer tells the police, oh, Whitsitt wrote these notes for me that said I could have his stuff. But a forensic document examiner says, that the notes were written by defendant Palmer himself and not by Witsit. Palmer then calls his mom 
and says, hey, I was the last person to see Whitsitt alive. And he then calls, oh, but, but these are all calls from jail, by the way. He calls his mom and says, oh, I'm the last person to see Whitsitt alive. He calls his girlfriend and he says, oh, I'm worried about the 22. But guess what? The police never told him that it was a 22 that killed Whitsitt. That's the Law and Order SVU moment, by the way. Police search the apartment. They find the 22. The forensic expert testifies that three of the four bullets from Whitsitt's body were fired from that pistol. And all of Whitsitt's stuff was found at Palmer's house, obviously. And he tells uh, a cellmate that he had planned the murder to get Whitsitt's drugs, but that he would beat the case. And he does beat some of it. He gets acquitted on the malice murder. But he gets found guilty of felony murder and some other stuff. And then he appeals. So the he raises a couple claims. And some of them you're going to recognize why they're bad. And this first one, I'll tell you why it's bad. Because I have tried, I've tried to raise this claim before and it does not go well. And this claim is challenging the search warrant. And the real problem with challenging a search warrant is the magistrate judge just gets so much substantial deference. And the reviewing court gets to look at everything in a whole to to see whether there was probable cause or not to issue this search warrant. Here, the, the defense argues that there's a Franks violation. That comes from the Supreme Court case Franks versus Delaware, which says that um, a search warrant affidavit is bad if a false statement is intentionally included. And here there was like a, a detective supplemental report prepared by one of the detectives that contradicts the search warrant affidavit that was made by a, another detective. And the issue is like whether or not the police had mentioned to a witness that a body had been found. And it was, it's in the scheme of things, it was really minor in the case. And even if you excise that from the search warrant, there was still probable cause. The, and so the, the Supreme Court holds that there's a, there was a substantial basis for granting the search warrant. The, they say, look, a minor discrepancy in a report made three months after the events does not demonstrate by a preponderance of the evidence that the affidavit was knowingly false or made in reckless disregard of the truth. They also say that the warrant was sufficiently particular. Here they tried to attack that the warrant asked for fingerprints, any and all firearms, any and all ammunition, shell casings, identification cards, receipts, photos, handwritten statements, cell phones, currency, and any and all blood evidence, and DNA. And... The defense tried to argue that was a general description with no particularity, and so it would be a general warrant, which is prohibited under the Fourth Amendment. But the Supreme Court said no, and they said, hey, listing classes of items is sufficient uh, is sufficiently particular so as to avoid being a general warrant. So that was their first claim. Second claim is that the trial court erred in excluding possible alibi evidence. And Defendant Palmer wanted to introduce alibi evidence from this witness who was going to testify that he picked the defendant up for a soccer game and that he saw Witsit, so that Witsit was alive when he picked him up for the soccer game. But it seems like a real comedy of errors for this trial counsel 
because, you know, trial counsel says, hey, we're going to call this guy. The state moves to exclude the witness saying, look, the defense never filed a written intention to offer a defensive alibi, which you have to file a written notice if you're going to introduce alibi. The And you should do it even if you're on the fence about it because this isn't in this case, but just by the way, they're not allowed to bring it up if you file it and then withdraw it, although I think they're allowed to cross-examine your client about it, but they're not allowed to introduce it in their case in chief that you filed a notice of alibi and then withdrew it. So you sh- you should really follow these notices if there's any you know any significant chance that you're going to call an alibi witness. Anyway, so the trial counsel says I didn't need to file an alibi witness because he's not going to testify about an alibi. All he's going to testify is that my guy wasn't there when witness when Whitset was killed, and the court says that sounds like an alibi, and then the trial counsel reveals well okay actually this witness isn't even under subpoena and is in Portland, Oregon at the time. So that's a problem. And and then the trial counsel tried to question police about this witness's statement to them, but it was a hearsay problem because this witness was not under subpoena, and so that's you can't talk about his statements because he's not available as a witness. And so that's an issue. And then it was an IAC because then at the motion for new trial, no one called this witness to testify about what he would say. And the, the Supreme Court said, and this is a quote, unsworn statements to police are not a legally acceptable substitute for witness testimony needed to prove prejudice. And I think we see this every week. If you're going if, if to claim ineffective assistance of counsel for not producing a witness, You've got to get that witness in at the motion for new trial hearing and have that witness testify about what they would have said at the trial or else you're going to lose. And that's what happened here. So Palmer swings and misses on all three and his conviction is affirmed. And that was Palmer versus the state, January 11th, 2021. All right, next next case is Nesby versus the state, Supreme Court case, January 11th, 2021, S21A. 0207. Um, so Nesby is a failed self-defense case, essentially. And so Nesby is, he sees his friend at a gas station. And so he asks his friend for a ride to the barbershop. And when they get to the barbershop, they see two men who had broken into Nesby's fiance's car the night before and had shot at the fiancé and the fiancé's brother. And Nesby says that the men were armed and they threatened him. Now here's where the self-defense case starts going south. What Nesby decides to do is go to a friend's house, get a gun, return to the gas station. Oh, I'm sorry, he ran in these people at the gas station and not the barbershop. But anyway, he returns to the gas station, He says, Defendant Nesby says, that one of the men shot at him, and so he shot back in self-defense. Big problem is that the surveillance did not show the victim shooting at Defendant Nesby, but it did show Defendant Nesby running with a large gun and firing shots at the victim. And two witnesses say they saw Nesby firing these shots, 
and the victim dies from a gunshot wound to the neck. Nesby tells his fiance he had to do what he had to do because the boy had a gun. He goes to trial and loses and raises this issue that throughout the trial, the court was conducting bench conferences outside of his presence. And he says that violates his right to be present at all critical stages of the proceeding. And now this is a pretty good issue, right? Because you get, it's a structural error, which means there's no harmless error review. If your if the defendant is not present at a critical stage of the proceeding, you will get your case reversed. The problem is the list of critical stages is getting shorter over the years. And a, a critical stage is one where like the defendant is participating, right? Where like the defendant's rights could be lost or defenses waived or privilege could be claimed or waived or something where like the outcome of the case is substantially affected in some way. But when the stage is only legal so that the defendant really couldn't participate anyway, then it is not a critical stage. And I believe that the charge conference is also something that is not a critical stage because it's only, you know, in, in the court's view, it is solely a legal discussion. And so the defendant can't really offer much. You can see where this is going. The same for these bench conferences because the bench conferences were about legal stuff and not stuff that Nesby could participate in. The Some of these bench conferences were during jury selection where the lawyer made motions for cause at a bench conference and Nesby wasn't there. And Nesby never... Nesby never made an objection during the trial that he was not present at these bench conferences, and the Supreme Court held that against him. The trial counsel also testified, by the way, at the motion for new trial hearing, that he had discussed all these issues with Nesby, and and Nesby was fine with it. So that claim goes down in smoke, and Nesby remains convicted of murder. I, I think the practice tips from this one, I think, are... I've seen some judges where there will be a either one, they have the defendant like waive this at the beginning of the trial and just be like, hey, if you don't want your trial to last two weeks, then we need you to waive your presence at these bench conferences. But then what they'll also do is they'll read out what happened at the bench conference. And I can't remember which DeKalb judge does this, Judge Jackson maybe, but whichever transcript I've read. Um, there's a judge in DeKalb that does this very well, where they'll have a bench conference and then the judge will recount what they all talked about at the bench conference and invite either side to add any additional commentary so that it's on the record. And that's probably the best practice if you're not going to have, if you're not going to have the bench conferences taken down and if you're not going to have the defendant actually come up and, and stand there or whatever. Anyway, so that was Nesby versus the state, uh, Supreme Court case, January 11th, 2021. Next case is Harper versus the state, Supreme Court case, January 11th, 2021, docket number S20A1288. 
And so Harper, it's a murder case. And it starts with 20-year-old Tandy Hunt moving from North Carolina to Atlanta to be with Harper. And they didn't have much money. They were staying in cheap hotels. But it was young love. And Hunt wanted to leave Harper, but he threatened her. And come to January 30th, 2011, Hunt's talking with a friend on the phone, and the friend hears Hunt and Harper tussling, whatever that means. Anyway, a couple days uh, later, February 2nd, um, post office worker sees a suspicious object in a wooded lot in Fulton County. And officers find a large object sealed in two large black trash bags wrapped several times around with duct tape. And guess what it is? It is Hunt's body. Very naked, very dead. Body goes unidentified for three weeks until Hunt's mother identifies it. Um, So they go to Harper. And Harper says he last saw Hunt in December or January. He consents to a DNA sample. They tests run on, um, so the forensic people swab the victim Hunt's chest, and those swabs reveal the presence of saliva containing Defendant Harper's DNA. And so Defendant Harper is interviewed uh, by police, and he at first denies living with Hunt and said he could not remember the last time he saw her because he, he said, because he was involved with so many women. But then they tell him about the DNA, and then he goes, oh, I was deeply in love with Hunt. And when I found her in the hotel room after she committed suicide, I just could not hold back. And the DNA found was his tears, his tears. Anyway, yeah, no one believes this. And during a break, Harper uses a detective's phone to make a call, and he tells the person, they got me, but I ain't tell them everything. I told them I found the body. They also found some pubic hairs on the duct tape that came from Harper. And so Harper was convicted of everything. And so this is a case, this is a case about the police interviews, right? Because without that interview, they don't have much. The, you know, I I think this is another good example of how bad people are lying. But anyway, so the the, Harper first moves to suppress his first interview where he was not under arrest. But he argued that he was in custody. And so what happened was the lead detective waited for Harper after church and then told him to come down to the station and, and drove him there. But Harper was not told he was under arrest. He was not handcuffed. No one physically took hold of him and he was free to leave at any time. Um, And, you know, the interview was on video too. And so the Supreme Court says, based on the totality of the circumstances, he was not in custody under Miranda. And so thus he did not need a Miranda warning before being interrogated. The test is if a reasonable person in Harper's position would have perceived that he was in custody, and here the answer is no. Second issue is for the second interview. 
And uh, Harper said, hey, the second interview should have been suppressed because the police, it took place after an arrest on what he says was an invalid arrest warrant. And the warrant is, in a word, hinky. It was issued 11 minutes before the police applied for it somehow. And the warrant did not include the victim's name. That's required by 17441A1. And the warrant was issued without any showing to the magistrate judge of probable cause. So the warrant wasn't great. But the Fourth Amendment does not require the suppression of statements made outside the home after a warrantless arrest, as long as the police had probable cause to make the arrest. And so if the arrest is supported by probable cause, even if the arrest warrant is invalid, the arrest is still legal. And here they had probable cause to arrest Harper because they knew that uh, Hunt had been killed, that she had been living with Harper, that she wanted to leave, that he had lied about their relationship and his DNA was found on her body. And so taking all that together, it's certainly enough to believe that Harper probably killed her. So that was Harper versus the state, January 11th, 2021. Last uh, criminal case this week is Johnson versus the state. It's a Supreme Court case, January 11th, 2021. It's S20A. <clears throat> one two eighty nine, and this is this is a wild one. It's from twenty ten, the summer of twenty ten, when I was studying for the bar exam, and it's about various robberies: robbing a Waffle House in Forsyth, a Chevron gas station on Buford Highway, and an Ingalls. And the Ingalls is the most interesting because uh, defendant Johnson. And um, some co-defendants robbed the Ingalls. And defendant Johnson actually worked at this Ingalls as a cashier. And so what they did was while Johnson was working, his three friends drove to Ingalls in Johnson's car, parked it in the back of the store near the loading dock, and texted defendant Johnson. Johnson let him in, and they hid in the milk cooler. And then three, the three employees who were working went to the back of the store to check the security door. And the friends jumped them. And Jackson didn't pretended like he was also a victim. They like they they taped everyone else up and covered their eyes and then robbed the place. And then they taped up Johnson to make it seem like he was the victim. But for whatever reason, um, there's a security guard there who they taped up and everything. And for some reason, they shot and killed him during the robbery. Police eventually figured out that Johnson was involved. Uh, they first were suspicious when he was pretty calm during the uh, when he was down at the police station. And then they found evidence that tied him to everyone else. Anyway, he goes to trial. He loses. And here's his claims. So one of the co-defendants flips, and he he had pled guilty to two of these robberies. And, and so he starts testifying about the Ingalls robbery, 
And then during his direct examination, he realizes he's, you know, I can't do this. I'm sorry. I can't do this. And he says, I plead the fifth. And he had pled guilty to the other two robberies, but not this Ingalls robbery. And the defense moves to strike the entire testimony. And the trial judge says, you can cross-examine him on what he's already testified about. But the trial attorney doesn't do it. And so that's a big problem because there's no error because they waived the objection because the trial attorney did not try to cross-examine this witness. You know, there's more stuff, but I want to talk about the learning point from this one first. The, you know, the learning point is if a witness tries to assert the fifth, you need to cross-examine them on what they've already talked about. And you need to try to cross-examine them on other stuff. And they may just, they may plead the fifth time and time again, and the trial judge may eventually stop you. But you need to try to get out what you're going to get out. Because if you don't, then you waive it. Um, And that's what happened here. Uh, Because the record did not show that the witness would have refused to answer questions on cross-examination under the Fifth Amendment. Because no one tried that. You know, not great. The second claim was ineffective assistance of counsel because trial counsel did not try to cross-examine this witness, even though the witness had, had said, I'm, I'm pleading the fifth. But the trial attorney did not testify at the motion for new trial hearing. And you always need the trial attorney to testify at the motion for new trial hearing if you're asserting ineffective assistance. And here... I'm trying to look at my notes where the quote is. Oh, when the trial counsel does not testify at the motion for new trial hearing, quote, it is extremely difficult to overcome the presumption that counsel's conduct resulted from reasonable trial strategy. That's quoting Charleston versus the state. And yeah, that's a big problem. Um, Now, practically speaking, it could be that they didn't call this trial counsel because it it was a strategic decision not to further cross-examine this witness. And, of course, if it's a strategic decision, then it is not an effective, right? So this could have been a ploy to try to do that. But if it was, it didn't work. The last two errors, the defense is complaining about stuff that wasn't suppressed. Um, And we talked about this before this week, challenging the search warrant and this kind of thing. The um, in one, the the officer, like when this defendant was being interviewed at the police station, he looked at this, this cell phone. He asked Johnson for this defendant Johnson for a cell phone and defendant Johnson gave it to him. And then he looked through the cell phone and then they got a warrant and they looked through the cell phone again. And. Here, uh, the trial court said, all right, the stuff before the warrant is suppressed, but the stuff after the warrant is not. Defense argued that the warrant should not have been issued, that there's no probable cause. Supreme Court disagreed. They said that the affidavit gave was detailed, gave facts of the robbery, and stated that based on the officer's training, he knew evidence may be revealed by searching the phone. And nothing, and this is important, nothing in the affidavit relied on information derived from the pre-warrant search of the phone. And so there was no taint, and it's all good. Um, The last claim that they raise is 
the trial court should have suppressed evidence found from a search of his house and a search of his car. And they were searched using separate warrants. Um, and I, I like the I like this argument. So the defense said, hey, look, the affidavit supporting these warrants contain no facts to show that he lived at the residence. And the warrant affidavit for the car failed to show that he owned the car. And this is the kind of close reading of documents argument that that really appeals to me. Uh, unfortunately for the defendant, you know, challenging a search warrant is one of the hardest, you know, it's, it's on the harder end of things to do. And the test for probable cause is not like a hyper-technical test. It's like a real-world test. And here there was sufficient evidence to to relate the, the house to the defendant and the car to the defendant. The For the house, Johnson, it, it during the police interview, Johnson admitted to being involved in these robberies and said the clothes would be at his house. And the police did a drive-by and confirmed that it was his house. And then in the for the car, they were able to link up the car through one of the co-defendants. And when they have facts like that somewhere in, in the case, then it's going to be good enough. This one was Johnson versus the state, January 11th, 2021, Supreme Court case. All right, now we're on to uh, personal injury cases. Uh, we got three uh, PI cases this week, an exciting time for us. All right, so the first PI case, it's out of the Court of Appeals. It's Strickland versus Geico, January 25th, 2021. It's A20A 1971. And, and this is a case about a renewal action. And here's what happened. Strickland sued Brower. It doesn't really matter who it is. Strickland sued the other driver off of a car wreck, timely. Strickland voluntarily dismissed the complaint and then sought to renew two months later. And this renewal complaint was not great. And by not great, it was deficient in this way. So when you file a renewal petition, the renewal statute is 9-2-6. And you can, after you dismiss a complaint, you even if it's outside the statute of limitations, if you file a renewal action within six months, then you're good. But the renewal petition must show affirmatively that the former petition was not a void suit, that it is such a valid suit that can be renewed under 9261 and that it is based upon substantially the same cause of action, that it is not a renewal of a previous action that was dismissed on its merits so that the dismissal would act as a bar to rebringing of the petition. So long story short is you got to include some stuff in the renewal complaint that explains, hey, this is a renewal complaint, the former petition wasn't void, that it's based on substantially the same cause of action, You should that kind of thing. These guys didn't do it here. But then they filed an amended renewal petition that did show all this stuff. But the amended renewal was not filed within the six-month renewal period. So the question is, does the amended renewal petition relate back to the filing of the original renewal complaint? And therefore, it's fine. And the answer is yes. The amended 
renewal petition arose out of the same occurrence set forth in the original complaint, in the original renewal petition, and the amendment only added necessary factual allegations relating to renewal that were omitted from the original renewal complaint. And these are curable defects. And so because of that, it relates back and they're all good. By the way, so proof supporting the renewal, it can be in the petition, it can be submitted separately, or a trial court can take judicial notice of the required facts. I think probably the best, I think best practice would probably be to attach a bunch of stuff as exhibits. So attach the, so when you're filing the renewal, attach like the original complaint as an exhibit and proof of service and a copy of the voluntary dismissal to show that, hey, here's the first complaint. And so you can show that this renewal arises out of the same occurrence and here's service to show that the first complaint was not void because the action was actually initiated. And then the voluntary dismissal paperwork to show, hey, it was a voluntary dismissal. It was not a decision on the merits. Anyway, so that was Strickland versus Geico, Court of Appeals case, January 25th, 2021. Next case is Forbes versus Ald, January 26th, 2021. Um, A19A0621. This is a court of appeals case. This is another just kind of workman case where this this opinion is returning to the Court of Appeals from the Supreme Court. It deals with whether the if I remember right, I think I watched this oral argument. It was something where I think some people got injured in Belize. I think maybe there was a school trip or something. And Belize has a one-year statute of limitation for personal injury, but Georgia has a two-year statute of limitation, and the PI lawyer messed up and didn't think about the one-year statute of limitation. And the the someone somewhere, trial court maybe or court of appeals, someone said, hey, the one-year statute is void for because it's against Georgia public policy, and the Supreme Court reversed on that. But anyway, you know, this is just one kind of implementing what the Supreme Court did, so not super exciting. Last case, last personal injury case, Baldwin versus Gay, January 28th, 2021, Court of Appeals case. It's A20A 2049. So there's facts here that aren't super important. The This is a automatic dismissal case, the, a five-year automatic dismissal case. And so what happened is, Long story short is that there, there was an action and the parties were doing something and it's complicated and blah, blah, blah. But anyway, nothing happened in the case. The, the, and by, by nothing happened, the court did not enter a written order in the case for a period of five years. And so if Georgia has a statute, 9-11-41-E, which says any action in which no written order is taken for a period of five years shall automatically stand dismissed. Shit. But when an action is dismissed under the subsection, if the plaintiff recommences the action within six months following the dismissal, then that renewed action stands on the same footing as the original action. The key here is that litigation efforts of the parties is not sufficient to 
to be in action within five years. There has to be a written order. But a written order of continuance works. If nothing happens in the case, if no written order is entered for four and a half years, and then the court enters an order you know, right before the five-year period, a continuance order, then you're set and you get another five years before it gets dismissed automatically. Or if it gets dismissed automatically, then you have that six months to issue the to get it renewed. The problem is, I'm guessing you don't get notice that it's been dismissed, that it's just it kind of times out. And, you know, that's what happened here, that the you know, they figured out, um, the, the appellant figured out, oh, shit, my case has been dismissed automatically like this and filed a renewal, but it was out of time. It wasn't within that six-month period. And so the answer is no dice, that the the original action stands dismissed for want of prosecution because it was then not recommenced within six months. The Here, Judge Barnes is doesn't really like this because she thinks that the application of the rule is correct but it's harsh and unfair and it, it's not a case where the pen, the continued pendency would clutter the court docket it was it's not involving a, a dilatory counsel and um, the one Baldwin and her lawyer had written the court a bunch of times at, you know, and, and communicating their desire to see the case move forward, but the trial court just never ruled. And really, it's the, you know, in some ways, it's the trial court's fault for not entering an order, even when the parties wanted the trial court to. On the other hand, what's the party's fault for letting the case expire? Judge Barnes thinks that the General Assembly should amend the statute to include grounds for reinstating a case that has been automatically dismissed. Anyway, that's Baldwin versus Gay, January 28th, 2021. And that is it for the week. I really appreciate you listening. I hope you found some value in the podcast. If you like it, uh, you know, please and subscribe. Give me five stars so that my ego can only grow bigger. And the the best the best favor you can do for me is if you truly like the podcast is to mention it to someone else who you think uh, would also like it and would also find value in it. And, and that would be great. Anyway, thanks for listening. And I will catch you next time with more cases from the Georgia appellate courts. All right. Talk to you next week.